Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Frank Bellamconda. Welcome, everyone, to the July chapter of the Always On EM podcast. My name is Bank Bellum Conda. I'm here with the one and only Dr. Alex Finch. Alex, good morning. How are you? Good morning to everyone. We're excited for another month and some new learning pearls. Speaking of new, July always brings new residents. We are so excited for the new members of our family. Welcome to all and all across the country. We can't wait for your energy and enthusiasm. This is going to be an amazing time. Really soak in every moment. I completely agree. July brings so much opportunity. I just love this time of year. Alex, is there something specific you remember from your very first shift as a doctor? Absolutely. My my first shift was actually with the program director of our residency. And so I was really feeling like I had to shine. And <laughs> it was in pediatrics. It was just such an incredible time where I really got to know somebody special in my life who continues to be a leader uh, for me and an inspiration for me. And so I remember that shift and I still have the picture from the first shift. And uh, Dr. Coletti, I have really improved my approach to the atraumatic knee that is red and swollen since that first shift, I promise. (laughs) That's wonderful. Thank you. Remember your first shift as an intern? Yeah, I was not in the emergency department because I was part of the psychiatry residency at first, but I was in the outpatient neurology clinics with Dr. Matsumoto, and I felt completely overwhelmed by the patients that we're seeing and the complexity of the things they managed. But he was so gracious with me, taking time to answer questions that he probably wished I knew coming into the, show, into the experience. But uh, I walked out from that month feeling a lot more in command, and it began with him. Well, it's a special time for the U.S. in general, of course, Independence Day being in July. And although our listeners probably don't need this message, I feel compelled anyway to say uh, that please be careful as you celebrate, celebrating with fireworks and with alcohol. The two don't mix. And so just be extra thoughtful and careful with that. But otherwise, I hope everyone has a great time. Fireworks are really an impressive thing. Our family loves seeing fireworks. What about you all? Absolutely. Summer's about fireworks and the pool and hot dogs, hot dogs. Yes. And burgers. Where are you going to go anywhere to watch the fireworks? No, not really any plans. Uh, my son is just about two years old. And so, uh, so we don't have any, any plans. You know, I sometimes going to see the honkers play afterwards. The fireworks celebration is just the right amount for a two year old. I know that our kids really love it and we might just do that. I love that plan. Vink, looking back, it's been quite a year, and we've interviewed a lot of experts. Is there one in particular that jumps out for uh, for any recent patient encounters? I didn't expect this necessarily, but I will say a a month ago or so, I was taking care of a woman who needed to go to the operating room out of the ED, and she was there with her husband and newborn baby, and there was a sense of anxiety before she went to the operating room. This was after we had talked about the diagnosis, given her initial treatments, et cetera. And so it was an unusual period to have that anxiety. And so I I was thinking about the conversation we had about optimizing the care of lactating patients in the ED. And I just asked if that was a concern. And 
she and her husband shared so many concerns that they had based on how long they'd been waiting in the waiting room, how long the ED stay was with their consultation, where they were going to the operating room, and this newborn trying to coordinate who goes to the hotel, how are they going to pump, store milk, what's that going to do to her supply, what medications are safe. She had so many questions, and I was able to address them all really, really well because of what we learned from that episode. And it was apparently so impactful that as I was charting outside, the husband came out of the room a couple minutes later and just gave me a a full-on hug and told me about how impactful that discussion had been for them and they were really worried. And so that's an episode that stands out. Certainly all of our episodes have been really impactful, but that one I think caught me off guard. I agree. The relationships we've built through this have been incredible. I think about calling Nanden in the middle of the night. He's uh, just so incredible. And and just this past week, actually, I've had a, a case where I had to call the incredible LVAD expert, Sarah Shettledown, to help me with a, a very difficult situation. And so I think that in some cases, we have explored very large topics. And then we've explored some more niche topics like lactation. And I I had a similar experience where I was called to our triage area to assess a patient who had a lot of questions about lactation in the emergency department with a proposed plan and the evaluation of a common chief complaint. And I was able to discuss the podcast, discuss her, her goals and needs while in the emergency department with the team that eventually took over her care. And she expressed that it just made a big difference. And so a big joy in being a part of this podcast is being able to explore topics that are large and also a deep dive on on topics that impact only a few patients but make a big impact on their lives. Speaking of topics that are a little bit more niche but play a huge role on the patients for whom uh, they impact, I want to talk about today's podcast. Are you ready? Absolutely, we should get started. But before we do, as always, Please take a moment to like, comment, and follow us on whatever platform you're using. It really helps us quite a bit and encourages us to keep going. We want to share with all of you that we hit a milestone for us. As a show, we've had now 10,000 downloads we celebrated in our studio, if you will, a really special moment. So with that, we'll get started. Today, I have the great honor of introducing a guest that really highlights why it's special to work here at Mayo Clinic. Everywhere you turn, there's someone who's pushing themselves to be the very best at trying to help patients in the best way they can as an individual. This is amongst an already incredibly talented and capable group of practitioners of different professional roles and types in a very challenging practice environment. Yet when people here are concerned about a patient with with an intrathecal baclofen pump, the person they want help from is Miss Lisa Beck. I have called her before when I was concerned about a patient in baclofen withdrawal whose pump was malfunctioning, and she brought an incredible calm and command to the bedside. Everyone, the patient, our entire healthcare team, were so grateful for her skill and expertise, which she has been honing over years and so many bedside experiences. Ms. Beck is an assistant professor of nursing and a clinical nurse specialist in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. She is also part of the program surveyor team for the Commission on Accreditation of Rehabilitation Facilities. She has been recognized so many times in many ways, but a few of the striking awards include receiving the Academy of Spinal Cord Injury Professionals Leadership Award, Spinal Cord Injury Nursing recognized her with an Excellence in Nursing Award, and the Mayo Clinic Fellows Association gave her the Fellows Fellow Award. 
Two separate Center of Innovation Awards have been given to her related to the care of persons with spinal cord injury. She's given numerous presentations around the country, and we just heard, including out of the country, in Mongolia. And she's authored nearly 30 peer-reviewed publications, additional book chapters, practice guidelines, and this will be her first podcast. Thank you so much, Ms. Beck, for being our guest today. Thank you for the invite. I'm both humbled and honored and Again, trying something new. You're having a great year. Mongolia and a podcast. All in one year, right? And so much more to come. I'm so curious. I think that you've had this incredible career with this area that I personally know very little about. Can you tell me more about your your career trajectory and how you got here? Oh, goodness. So my career in its own, um, I was actually started as a staff nurse on the rehabilitation unit and fell in love with spinal cord injury population and care of persons with spinal cord injury. Um, And so I was actually a staff nurse when we started to utilize intrathecal baclofen. And actually I started presenting on intrathecal baclofen as a staff nurse in the early 90s, somewhere around there. So just a couple days ago. I know. And then eventually I did go back to grad school and, and took on the CNS provider role where I'm currently at. And do manage all of our patients that have baclofen in their intrathecal pumps here at Mayo Clinic. About how many is that? How many uh, patients? Yeah. I, I see anywhere from 50 to 70 patients. Um, oh. And it, that's our, our intrathecal baclofen pump f- um, population for Mayo Rochester? For Mayo Rochester. And we usually try to um, not see patients that, or see patients within a, a three-hour time frame to drive here just because of the emergency component of it if they are in withdrawal. That makes sense. Is that a pretty typical practice for managing these pumps? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what is baclofen? If we can start there. I I don't use it almost at all, except that one day that you and I used it together. (laughs) So baclofen itself is actually a really old medication um, used for spasticity in a lot of neuro upper motor neural diagnostics. And it's a GABA B agonist, um, definitely helps with spasticity. Intrathecal baclofen itself um, came about in 1992 to really manage um, spinal origin of of spasticity. And then eventually was approved um, in 1996 for cerebral origin. So it's it's used in both varieties, and when oral baclofen, we can max out on oral baclofen and try other antispasmodics, and sometimes all we're doing is really sedating the patient instead of helping them be functional. That's when intrathecal baclofen is something to look into, when they just can't tolerate the side effects of the medications, or they're just not as efficient. Lisa, of course, we're going to talk a lot about intrathecal baclofen pumps and how things might go wrong, particularly as it focuses on the emergency department. But most of us, myself included, don't fully understand the positive impact that these devices have on people's lives. Can you give us some insight into that? Oh my gosh, this simplifies a lot of their lifestyle um, uh, and needs of taking oral medications that can make them very sleepy, kind of weak. we have to maximize oral medications to their top potential to really get the efficacy of intrathecal baclofen. Um, Patients feel so much more awake when they have the pump. They no longer have to remember to take their medications four times a day. That's hard to do. Um, 
they just have to show up once their pump system is implanted and we really have them dosed well. They have to show up for the refills every three to six months. And we can individualize. The coolest thing about this is really we can individualize the therapy for these patients. Um, so if they have, boy, when they go to bed, I have patients that are sitting up in their wheelchair all day, they transition to bed and that stretch on those hip flexors really kick in their spasticity. I can program a bolus to be delivered within an hour and a half, two hours before they go to bed. That helps knock down their spasticity during that transitional time. And same thing when they wake up in the morning. So we can really focus targeted boluses through the day and, and individualize their therapy. So when I see on a problem list that a patient has a baclofen pump, what exactly is in their body? So they actually have a, looks like a silver hockey puck. Um, and it's the size of a hockey puck and it's um, or surgically implanted um, under their abdomen tissue, anchored in quite well. It has a port for refills and it also has a side port that a catheter is connected to and the catheter then is traversed along um, the side of the body and um, surgically um, brought in through the L23 space and tunneled up typically anywhere from T6 to T8, kind of depending on what muscles we're targeting to really reduce spasticity. So the system itself that's implanted is, it's a pump and a catheter system. So either one of them could have problems. That makes sense. Now, earlier you touched on it a little bit, but can you explain again, what is the real benefit to intrathecal baclofen over oral? Is it that they are different doses? So the oral um, baclofen has to go through that, cross that blood-brain barrier. So you have to go up higher doses on oral to get a better response from it. And then what we end up with are people that are very sleepy, um, they may be weak. And a lot, all of our antispasmodics have that side effect profile of sedation and, and weakness. So intrathecal baclofen actually delivers baclofen to the site right within the CNS flu or CSF fluid. So it's essentially bathing the spinal cord in baclofen. You shared in some of our planning of this that the origin of intrathecal medications has some interesting history to it. Yeah. What was that again? So actually one of my pain fellows um, shared this with me a long time ago that um, the first targeted docu or documented use of uh, the delivery intrathecally occurred in 1898. Um, August Beer and his partner injected their own intrathecal spaces with cocaine in an attempt to produce anesthesia, right? <laughs> um, so... How'd it go? Do we know? <laughs> you know, I can't find the rest of the story. Yeah. You can make that up as you would love. <laughs> I wonder what would happen if cocaine was introduced intrathecally. That's, that's a heck of an ex experiment. I'd like to see the IRB proposal on that. Oh, yes. It, I'm sure it, it was a minimal risk. Yeah, minimal risk. <laughs> Just using the wizard. Yeah. <laughs> And you mentioned the tube goes from the front to the back related to the device, mm -hmm. but where is the base device located? It's it's in the abdomen, the lower quadrant. It could be left or right lower quadrant. Okay. Um, so it really uh, is a decision that the patient and the implanting surgeon decide which side it's going to go on. Is it something that you can see under the skin or you have to feel it? 
Um, depends on the uh, fluffiness of the patient. So I have some very skinny patients. You can absolutely see all the margins of their pump. And then there's some patients that have a little more tissue that hide their pumps on me. Excellent. Mm -hmm. And is it in the skin layers the per uh, or is it deep to the perineum? Subcutaneous. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned that. And, I and so overall we have the pump and then there's a catheter that delivers the medication intrathecally. What are what is the common maintenance routine? How does the, the device get power and medicine when it needs it? So the pump that we typically see is a Medtronic pump. Um, it has a battery to it, um, and it has a peristaltic rotor delivery mechanism, so it pushes the medicine out. Um, so the battery itself is good for seven years. Unfortunately, that means the whole pump has to come out and be re-implanted. Um, once a patient has a pump implanted, we do a lot of titration dosing because typically they're on oral medications of oral baclofen. So cutting their oral baclofen in half day one of surgery, and then I'll see them the week later, and that's when we're starting to titrate up their intrathecal dosing and bring down their um, oral dosing. And, you know, patients feel so much better once they can come off those oral medications. They just feel like the cloud is lifted and they're just more cognizant. Um, after that, then it's really checking in to see is their spasticity well controlled. And once we hit that target, then they're just coming in for their refills. And refills can be anywhere from every two months to six months. The longest someone can be away from me is six months. That's the efficacy approved by the FDA. Um, of the drug in the pump. Is it technically challenging to, to refill it? And when you're changing those settings, is this a, a radio frequency device that you're, you're doing that or how does that work? Correct, you're right. It is a radio frequency. So um, that is non-invasive when I'm changing their dose. Trying to do the refills, again, if, if they're relatively easy to find the pump, it's pretty easy to get to the port. There is a template that allows me to find the the port of the pump once it's lined up. There, there are some tricky pump refills that the location of the pump is a little tricky that I've acquired patients over the years, so. Eddie stand out in your mind? Uh, I have a gentleman that's um, very tall and kind of big and his pump was placed elsewhere and it is so laterally, I actually sit next to him in his power wheelchair and can almost sit on the floor to refill his pump. So that one's kind of tricky and it's also a little oblique, so it's not just perpendicular to the surface of the skin. So it just gets a little tricky, but once you figure it out, you mentally make your notes of how to find it again. I didn't even think about the complexity of relating it to the wheelchair. And how he sits, yeah. 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 And sometimes I'll have um, patients, if, I have, if they're in a power chair, by having them open up their power chair, opens up their abdomen, and stretches them out and I can find the pump a little bit easier. You've alluded to the fact that there are a couple of devices. What would you say are the most common ones we might see in emergency medicine? And are there key features that would be different as we try and troubleshoot things? Oh, that's a fantastic question. So currently the Medtronic Synchromed 20 and 40 um, intrathecal pumps 
are the common ones you will see here. Again, that's the peristal uh, peristaltic rotor delivery mechanism. The thing to be aware of with all of the pumps is MRI. This pump does stall during MRI. So if they're not seen here at Mayo Clinic, we usually will check their pump and look at their settings before they go into MRI. And then the pump does stall. We don't have to turn it off. It stalls all by itself. However, we have to either our PM and our team or myself will go and check the pump and make sure it restarts again. And they usually do within a couple hours. The other pump that just recently came out, I want to say in 2019, was a Flowonix uh, pump by Prometra. Their pump has a 10-year battery versus a 7-year. This is a pressure-driven valve-gated delivery mechanism. So the... Um, cautious with this system that I had last been involved in is the MRI of this pump as the um, there's a chance of overdosing the patient as this gated delivery mechanism may cause the outlet valves to open resulting in immediate discharge of the drug into the reservoir to the patient so you can have significant overdose that's terrifying <laughs> it is. so either either it'll pause just for the MRI or they'll get the entire dose right, right. So, you, so you definitely need to know which which pump they have um, and then for the um, flowonics actually you have to have someone come in and not only read the the pump but also remove the drug so then you need someone's you know you'll need the kit to remove the drug wait till the MRI is done have someone re put the drug back in and reprogram the pump. So it's a little bit trickier. So we've decided right now that it's not our pump for MRIs. <laughs> and you know there will have to be other uh, imaging suggestions or thoughts, considerations, if someone has that pump versus MRI. And so overall, if the if you're using the Medtronic, you know that the device will stall. And in general, they just need to be seen afterwards to make sure it starts again. But there isn't any other pre-MRI procedure that needs to occur. Uh, additionally, do they need oral baclofen or something while they're in the scanner? Or are the doses such that they're probably fine for an hour or two? They are probably fine for an hour or two. If you really think about it, um, the drug is sitting in the uh, CSF as a, as a cistern. So um, they may have two-hour gap of getting drug delivery, but it won't make a huge change in their efficacy of their dose. Earlier, you had also mentioned a Codman device. Is there anything we need to know about that one? So a third pump that was out on the market before 2019, and I can't tell you when it came out. I did see it years back. It was a Codman 3000. It was um, produced by Johnson & Johnson. That did come out of the market. They were implanted, some in the southern states of the United States. I don't know what happened to those uh, pumps if they got transitioned then to Medtronic. So that might still be out there. I'm just not sure where their status is. So somebody traveling through might have that device. There's a possibility. How do you manage that when our teams call you with a device that isn't Mayo applied? Does that make you nervous? Do we have equipment for all these common devices? How does that handle? That makes me nervous because we don't we don't have the resources. So the Codman, I, I've never seen. The Flowonics, I know, is out there. We have a rep up in the cities, so we would have to call the rep because we don't have we don't have the programmer, we don't have the refill kits, we don't have the technology to manage those pumps. So this is, in general, I think our center would be similar to a lot of centers that it's a very specialized, very specialized practice in each location, which is something important to know in emergency medicine. 
this patient shows up, you might be in a community shop. It's really important to figure out what model is. And then when you're calling the receiving hospital to ask, are they familiar with this device? Because it might be you have several receiving hospitals that have different expertise. Oh, exactly true. Um, some the, Definitely the community hospitals do not have that expertise or the technology to manage these pumps, patients with the pumps, that they would have to fly into Mayo Clinic, into our emergency department. Is the, the fundamental problem in the MRI seems to be the electromagnetic field. Is it just an MRI that could cause these problems or household magnets? Household magnets, you are spot on. And I, I'm seeing um, in some of the conferences now there are some case studies of iPhone and iPhone magnets, hmm. the magnets for mm. our Apple devices. And I also had one of my patients his pump would alarm and go off and then alarm and go off again. And it ended up being, we figured out his bedside monitor for his cardiac defibrillator. Oh, that's so interesting. So, so there, yeah, we have to be careful of some of the magnets that we're seeing in our world these days. You know, Alex, when we were building our new emergency department several years ago, we were having problems with our defibrillators and monitors, especially when we tried to pace people. And it had to do with the um, RFID wiring that we were putting in the ceilings. And I had to wheel a patient in the hallway for it to get captured because it wouldn't in the room. How did you know? How, it was, how was it that was, on your differential? I'm so impressed that well, you were like, there were an, to, the, to the hallway. <laughs> there were a few outcomes in that time period that I had been aware of in my leadership role that told me that I need to get out of the room. And it, it worked out of the room, but it's amazing that you're seeing that with these pumps as well. And, and sometimes even just to interrogate the pump, again, it's radio frequency, and it may slow the, the um, connection, even power wheelchairs. Sometimes I'll have them turn off their power wheelchair, or if they have a, a cushion that's got some automaticity to it, so we may have to turn off devices to obtain that. I also found out that if a person's pump has flipped over, which is very rare but can happen, it is really hard for us to interrogate their pump. It doesn't pull as easily the information uh, and, via And you mean frequency. physically? Physically flipped. Upside down. Physically flipped over. In the subcutaneous tissue. Yes. And I imagine the ports to access and fill, oh, and not they're now either. not accessible. Correct. How would you know that it's flipped? So knowing what the pump looks like, it looks kind of like an egg, and the catheter comes off at about one or two o'clock. And if you look on x-ray imaging, you can see that it's coming off down below. So on what side the catheter's coming off, you could do an x-ray and find out. You can palpate and figure out, I can figure out where the catheter port is and where the catheter comes out. So if you know the pump well enough, you can figure out how it's lying in about in someone's abdomen. Recently, I did have a gentleman whose pump had been flipping, and it just this it wasn't quite secure in his abdomen. So when he it would ride over his hip bone when he would stand and sit, and I think that's what would turn it. And it just happened to be my lucky day that it flipped the right way for me to do his refill until wow. he went back to his surgeon to anchor it down better. And is that the end end goal for those situations that they have to get them re-anchored? Yeah. Yeah. For an emergency physician who's caring for this patient, should we be routinely getting an x-ray of the device when we're seeing patients with baclofen pumps? Not necessarily. No. 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 Okay. I think the flip pump is very unusual. Okay. 
very unusual. We do get x-rays routinely on pacemakers when we're worried about if there's a malfunction with them. In the past, an x-ray would have been very helpful to look at the catheter. Okay. The opacity of the catheter no longer, um, they switched, Medtronic switched catheters in 2012, um, and they had a silicone catheter that was really, you could visualize it on plain imaging. In 2012, they changed catheters to a braided polymer catheter, which is more durable, which I'm grateful for, but you cannot follow it except you can see the tip of the catheter on imaging. Hmm. So you wouldn't know if it's fractured along the you way. Had, you couldn't see it, right. But I do appreciate the strength of it. Okay. So so that, if, if you don't mind, um, this really brings on probably the most common situation of, of withdrawal that you guys would see in the emergency room are those people that have the catheters prior to 2012, those old silicon catheters. I've seen six or seven people now in the last year and a half whose old catheters from that system either fractured, kinked, and had been causing the patient withdrawal symptoms that they had to have the whole system replaced. So just, again, knowing, number one, what kind of pump do they have, but also how long have they had their system? You know, if, if they don't know, that's fine. We can always call Medtronic, too. They have records of this. So it's just one of those things that's really come up in the back of my head now every patient I see, how old is their catheter? Because that certainly has been a contributing factor. And if they've had the same catheter, such as the young gal we saw in the emergency room, her catheter was 20 years old and she grew. And, you know, it didn't quite accommodate her growing spurt. So we don't know what is the the age of these catheters? When should they be? um, Should they be routinely changed out, especially those old catheters from 2012? We don't have any good guidelines on that yet. We've touched on baclofen withdrawal a couple times mm-hmm. so far. What does this patient look like for our audience? So the first thing that the patient will experience, and this is what really we have to put in the back of our brain, is their spasticity increases, okay? And it increases to the point of prior to their pump placement. I'll see patients with spinal cord injury who may have increased spasticity related to urinary tract infection. So first of all, we have to sort out what's the spasticity related to. Um, I do educate my patients and my residents about um, intrathecal baclofen uh, signs of withdrawal. It's ITB therapy, ITB. So not in the order of occurrence, but they become itchy. So they have puritis without any visible rash all over, okay? So that'd be itchy. T is for twitchy. Their spasticity has returned to baseline. And you know where B is. I'm thinking I th- I think I okay. know, but But it's yeah, it is itchy because okay. they're irritable. Okay? okay. They're irritable because now they have this big itchy feeling and they're more spastic. So that's how my patients do recall how to, you know, what withdrawal looks like. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those are the big first ones that we see. Over time we can see um, I mean, it really can progress to really bad things such as seizures, rhabdomyolysis, and or multi-organ um, failure if we don't catch it early enough. So you started to talk about spasticity, and this is something that you see every day, but we don't see as commonly in our practice. How do you approach saying your spasticity is close to your baseline? On physical exam, what types of things do you see? This is Venk. I'm going to quickly jump in to talk about spasticity. Spasticity and rigidity are two of the major types of hypertonia that patients may experience and you will likely experience 
examining them in the emergency department. Rigidity is the result of extrapyramidal lesions such as in the basal ganglia, whereas spasticity is more related to pyramidal lesions, namely the corticospinal tracts. And the result of this is that rigidity affects both agonist and antagonist muscle groups equally. So rigidity will be seen both in flexion and extension equally, and in fact is at the same intensity throughout the range of movement, regardless of speed. Whereas spasticity affects primarily the flexors of the upper limb and the extensors in the lower limb, and is also not uniform throughout range of motion. It's usually more tone in the very beginning, so more resistance initially, and then releases towards the end of that. Also, it tends to be increased with this increase of speed of movement. So the quicker you try and move the, the limb or the joint, the more spasticity you will experience. Spasticity, by the nature of being a corticospinal lesion, is associated with hyperreflexia and often clonus as well. So again, to summarize, rigidity and spasticity are different types of hypertonia. Rigidity is from extrapyramidal lesions. Spasticity is from pyramidal lesions. Spasticity is velocity dependent. The quicker you move the joint, the more spasticity that you will experience. Spasticity is more present at the initiation of movement and usually releases after that. Spasticity usually affects the flexors in the upper limb and extensors of the lower limb more than they affect the other group, whereas rigidity is uniform throughout speed, throughout range of motion, and both flexors and extensors. All right, let's get back to the talk. Oh, it all depends on the function of the patient. So spasticity, um, for example, I have a patient that had a couple of pressure injuries, and that was resulting in increased spasticity. And so it was above his normal spasticity. We can manage spasticity and really tone it down to where I can move somebody's limbs and not elicit any spasticity. When they're really engaged, such as in withdrawal or if this gentleman had wound, um, we'll see a lot of co-contracture of quads and hamstrings, for example. So overall, you're doing passive range of motion, and when you do the passive range of motion, you're feeling continued contracture of those muscles. Right, and it's actually a velocity dependent, so even a fast, um, motion will induce one of those spasms. Spasms and spasticity. Is it fair to say spasms are, they have a start and an end, and spasticity might be more prolonged? Mm -hmm. okay. So you'll hear a lot, you know, of tone, spasticity, spasms that we kind of use intermingling. Overall, when you get a call from an emergency doc, and you're trying to, in your mind, place where this patient is on the spectrum of withdrawal, what type of workup do you wish had been done by the time you get the call? Certainly one of us will need to go in and check their pump. And um, if they're one of our patients and we know them, um, that's helpful. When they're outside our system, there's a lot that we need to find out as to um, you know, what their dose was, who's been managing their pump, um, how they move. So there's so much to understand. Um, 
I guess it's really making sure there aren't any other differential diagnoses going on. Um, again, withdrawal could, or increased spasticity could be a urinary tract infection. Uh, someone that's septic um, has a really horrible pressure injury. Um, and then on the flip side, overdose, someone that comes in looking very sedated, loss of conscience, because they have a pump, <coughs> excuse me, they have to, we still have to rule out that they're not being overdosed. So it's, it's helpful for us to come in and, and interrogate the pump and really look at you know, what the dosing is, what's going on, if there's any alarms. So the pump does have alarms when the drug is getting low and then when the drug is kind of out of the pump. Are these audible alarms? Yes. Okay. So and when I walk into the room, if I hear beeping, almost no matter what, it's bad, Vank. If, it's, if, there's, a, <laughs> if there's any device, an LVAD, if there's yes. some sort of device, if I hear beeping, Even the IV pump. Yep, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Silence. Silence. Yes, exactly. So, no. so the intrathecobaclofen pumps, they do have two kinds of alarms. There's a non-critical alarm. So if they miss the refill, for example, if the refill was... Um, yesterday and they forgot or they couldn't make it we're in minnesota we have weather okay so they couldn't make it in we always keep this two cc cushion of drug in the pump when the first alarm goes off so that alarm goes off every hour it's just a one tone sound they may not catch it the first time i had one woman think her um, daughter's alarm on her watch was going off and she thought it was her pump it was somebody's watch but the second alarm, so once they get past that last two cc's and they hadn't come in, um, despite our contacts or we don't know they're in town for it, their refill, whatever, um, if they miss their um, refill altogether, then their alarm gets a little more um, annoying. And it sounds like an old English siren, the do-do-do-do, every 10 minutes. So that's the one where they really need to get here immediately. And then when it's completely out, is there a third level? Then, no, the, no they just need to get here. They get here. So we have to put drug in the pump. And we talked about the initial presentation of withdrawal, the ITB. What happens if nothing is intervened upon still? Then they will go into withdrawal. I mean, once usually once the drug empties down um, in the pump and it says zero, sometimes there's still a little left in the pump itself. Um, but they will start going into withdrawal when it's about 48 hours of not getting drug is when people will go into withdrawal. And is that life-threatening? Absolutely. So withdrawal is more life-threatening than overdose. Okay. Again, we can these patients can go into rhabdomyolysis and multi-organ failure. So, yes, we have to get them in, get them started on other um, IV um, benzodiazepines, oral meds if we can and really get that um, spasticity under control. And they're dying or getting critically ill because of the overuse of their muscles. Right, from right the from the rhabdo. Mm -hmm. Got it. You had talked about the anatomy of the pumps. Can you break down for me, and I don't mean that as a pun, how the pumps break down? Where's the problem? There's, there's a catheter, there's the actual electronics, and then there's trying to get the medicine into the device. How, how, what types of problems will we see and how will we make the diagnosis? Um, Assuming it's not just uh, they didn't come in in time. Yeah, yeah. Um, the most common thing you're going to see is a withdrawal. Um, 
Overdose, so first an overdose is, is typically would occur 24 to 48 hours after a pump has been refilled. Okay. And overdose is typically the result of a person, the provider error. Either they got the wrong concentration in the drug um, is typically it, or they programmed too high of a dose, okay? I have to, um, kudos to Medtronics, their new programmer really shouts out at you if you're going too high, and it's just a much clearer screen to help avoid that. But then again, we do have three different concentrations of the drug on the par- on the market. So so overdose would be something we would you know find out when their last refill is. Okay, so that would be a provider error. Um, pump error, I haven't seen many pump errors recently um, in the last few years. Prior to that, I had one pump a year that the alarms were going off and the motor stalled. And so they came through and it was very audible, the alarm was going off. What you're going to probably have to search for more so is going to be the withdrawal. And would it be, a, and most likely is gonna be a catheter issue. How do I get to that in the era where these are radio lucent? So I'm gonna have a patient who I have clinical suspicion for it. And is there any sort of radiology study I'm gonna do? How am I gonna get to that diagnosis? So. Number one, we'll look at their signs and symptoms. Um, we'll also, our team will in- look at the pump itself, interrogate the pump, make sure um, the d- drug delivery seems appropriate. What we can do is actually go and access the drug itself and pull out to make sure the drug matches the amount of drug that was, it was said to be in the pump, delivery-wise. If we're seeing you know, a lot more drug that might be concerning that the drug's not being delivered, um, the other thing is we can get our colleagues from pain clinic to do a dye study, a side port, um, via the side port, and um, utilize dye to see the integrity of the catheter itself. So to repeat back overall, the biggest life threat that the patient will face in our care potentially is baclofen withdrawal. And this is really going to be a syndrome where the patient is having increased spasticity and you talked about some other signs and symptoms. So when I see that patient with a baclofen pump, I'm going to think through a couple of things that could be going on. Most likely there is an issue with the catheter and I'm probably not going to be able to make that diagnosis alone as an emergency physician. So I'm going to be focused on coordinating with your team to treat the toxicity associated with the withdrawal. And uh, when it does come to the diagnostics, I'm thinking through, it could be a pre-pump issue. So perhaps there was an attempt to to refill it and it didn't get to the right space. And uh, and so it could be a, a patient who thought they had it refilled yesterday, but in that situation, the pump would be working and potentially still be alarming, potentially, and saying that, that the reservoir is empty. The second would be a intra-pump issue and that would really be, uh, you know, is the reservoir empty? Or you said previously there have been failures of the pump and a more silent failure would be, is there an electromagnetic field that the, the patient perhaps inadvertently has been exposed to? And, uh, and that would again be coordinating with your team. And the, the last thing is a post-pump issue, which we've talked about, the, uh, the difficulties of, of finding that, but really that's gonna be transferred to a center 
that could potentially do a, a dye study to interrogate the the line. Does that sound right? It does sound right. Um, another thing you you kind of triggered in my brain is, and I've not seen it occur. It's called a pocket refill. So. Um, we do have to be very diligent when we're doing our refills in these pumps and making sure we're taking out clear liquid from the pump. Um, I, in the literature, there are, are examples of patients that had their pumps filled, but actually it really went in the pocket of the of the of where the pump is and not into the pump. And the pump doesn't know that. The pump is not smart enough to know that it has drug in it or not. It calculates what you tell it for the dose mm. and when the drug should be you know, complete or not. So a, a, a pocket fill such as that, it, the pump would think it has drug. That's so interesting. But when the patient goes in withdrawal 24 to 48 hours after a refill, that'd be a good thing to seek out. I thought that it would be alarming as though it's empty, but it, it wouldn't know that. It wouldn't know that because the person that refilled it set the pump to be filled at 20 or 40 cc's. And so it would just keep calculating. So it would require a bedside interrogation, not only radiofrequency interrogation, but basically an aspiration of the port yeah. to see if there's anything inside. Yeah. Wow. Do you think the volume is big enough that an ultrasound might show the fluid around the device? Um, certainly it could. However, I do have some patients that also have seromas around their pump. Okay. So that would make it very challenging. It's, yeah. And I'm thinking about a very sick patient in front of me, rhabdo, multi-system organ failure, who's diaphoretic, hypertonic, or like have excess tone. That could appear very similar to serotonin syndrome, NMS, seizure, a variety of things. How do you distinguish baclofen withdrawal from these other entities? Well, number one, they have a pump. <laughs> Um, and, and number two, really their spasticity was the first trigger. Okay. Okay. Versus, you know, serotonin, we just started them on a medication. So right. it's, you know, what's the initial uh, trigger that's starting us down this chase? So history and physical. Mm -hmm. We have a general theme on our show and that's Alex needs to do better histories and physicals. <laughs> 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 and it continues, it seems. Absolutely. Now, the opposite of withdrawal, what would we see in intrathecal baclofen overdose? Yeah. Um, you know, again, it's, it's not all that common, okay? Um, you'll see drowsiness, altered mental status, dizziness, hypotonia. I mean, that's sometimes a goal of intrathecal baclofen. Um, seizures, reps, respiratory depression, loss of consciousness. So um, people come with those signs and symptoms for multiple other diagnosis. And so we have to really try to sort out what is the differential. I'm imagining a patient who's confused. They're traveling through Rochester so they don't get their care here and they can't tell me things, but they're they're drowsy, they're floppy. How am I going to know about the fact that they have a pump if it's not visible to me on exam? It should be palpatable. The pump okay. will be palpatable. Okay. Um, the important thing, and hopefully they have somebody with them, yeah. um, that you would see the overdose would be when was their last programming or refill? Because this would happen within 48 
hours of dosing that they would get the overdose component. In the next part of the interview, we're going to talk about baclofen overdose. But before we do, I want to describe a little bit about what that might look like clinically. Baclofen overdose can present with hypothermia, hypoventilation, bradycardia, bradypnea, hypotension, Nausea and vomiting and somnolence are, cer- are certainly reported with overdose, but also myoclonus, hypotonia, seizures, and coma can happen as well. Intubation and mechanical ventilation is sometimes required for moderate to severe overdoses. And with baclofen ingestions, hypothermia has even been seen to be so profound that even Osborne waves can be seen on ECG. There's a frightening case report by Ross Sullivan, Michael Hodgman, Luis Cao, and Lura Tormoelen in 2012 in the Journal of Clinical Toxicology. And they report two different cases of baclofen overdose. Now, these are not intrathecal overdoses, but oral baclofen overdoses. And one was a 40-year-old woman who was found unresponsive by family alongside empty bottles of baclofen, nabumetone, diphenhydramine, and alprazolam. No response was seen at the scene with naloxone. She ended up getting intubated. She was not breathing on her own. She was found to be hypothermic, have fixed dilated pupils, no corneal or ocular reflexes, and flaccid limbs. An EEG was done along with neurology consultation, and the EEG showed burst suppression pattern uh, and essentially was consistent with severe brain injury or even brain death. The neurologist was assisting in the care, and there was discussions between the healthcare team and the family about organ donation and withdrawal of life support. The case report reads verbatim, with organ procurement imminent, eye opening and extremity movement were observed. She improved and eventually was discharged to psychiatric care on day 15. The other case that they report in this same publication is a 51-year-old woman who was also on multiple medications, including phenobarbital, phenytoin, digoxin, warfarin, baclofen, and more. She was found unresponsive, hypothermic, hypotensive, bradypneic, with non-reactive pupils about four millimeters in size. On day five, this healthcare team also was considering brain death and consulted neurology for that examination. But because it was a weekend, that consult did not get done. And before the consult team actually did get to her on Monday morning, she started to improve and continued to improve fully. I think these cases really highlight the severity with which baclofen overdose can affect the human body to the point where people can be fooled into thinking people are brain dead. And there are some protocols that say that on for patients who might have baclofen overdose, we should wait for five elimination half-lives to complete before establishing brain death. All right, we're going to get back into the interview and Lisa is going to talk about baclofen overdose as well. Um, with baclofen overdose, though, and if it truly is, um, certainly we want to, you know, protect their airway and breathing and all that. But we can actually set the pump. Um, a couple of things we can do to mitigate the with uh, the overdose is we could do a CSF uh, lumbar puncture okay. and pull out some of the drug. We oh. could do a catheter, um, like a dye study, and pull out drug via the catheter. Or we can set the, the um, delivery system down to a half rate or a really minimal rate to mitigate that. And 
without such significant um, catastrophic issues as we do see with withdrawal. And with like benzodiazepine overdose, a lot of it is supporting the patient's vital functions through this. Is that the same for this, or is there an antidote that we need to be thinking about? So there's no antidote for overdose of intrathecal baclofen. Um, again, it's just, as you said, supporting them through the, through the episode. Um, and again, we can reduce, pull out the drug um, from the catheter, from the CSF, and slow down the pump itself. I'm hearing and somewhat in awe of the the complex approach that you have to these devices. I'm trying to think about myself in a, in a practice where you're not immediately available to me because I've already decided step one, patient register, step two, call you. Um, but <laughs> in practices where I, I don't have that luxury, it seems like a real focus is going to be getting information about the the pump and Vank, what what types of information do you do you think we need? It sounds like we need to know when and who placed the device, who makes the device, when it was last filled, with what it was filled, and really an attention to physical examination and their symptoms. Does that summarize it pretty well? That really does, absolutely. And then considering a broad differential as to other things that might cause spasticity, so excluding sepsis and other infectious etiologies, and then considering reversible things that we can treat early, considering things like a CK for a rhabdo early on. And so we're going to reach out then to to a specialty center with this information, and that's how we can take the best care of a patient. How can we mess things up? Are there things that an EM doc could do uh, for the average baclofen patient that would really take things off the rails? Um, so remember, there's this catheter that's going in at L23. So um, if you're doing a lumbar puncture, you have to remember the catheter's there. Any emergent spinal surgery, um, I've ha- actually had a patient's um, catheter get tugged or pulled during a spinal surgery and so her um, efficacy of her drug was not so good anymore and we got her through um, withdrawal because of that. So being very aware of any procedures on the back um, that have a pump. Um, I've also had somewhere in a system where a refill appointment got canceled, so that can mess things up. Yes. Um, and then, you know, again, the MRI component of making sure that the uh, pump is is checked again after MRI. Um, One thing I did learn um, recently is if the pump is tipped axially, it can actually cause pump failure in an MRI machine. Not that anybody's pump should be like that when they're lying down, but just... Interesting. Those flipper guys might have a chance for their pump to flip on them. Right. Yeah. So those would be the ones I'd really be concerned about. And just to clarify, we should be calling yourself and other specialists before the patient goes to MRI. Is that right, to be able to assess the device ahead of time? If if they're seen within our medical system, we already have the documentation of, of their drug, their device, their dose. So we have to see them on the flip side 
and just make sure it restarts to the appropriate settings. So known patients in their their home environment yes. don't necessarily need a pre-MRI evaluation. Correct. Got it. Okay. Unless you have the... Wait, I got to go back to the name. Flovix? The, the Flovix. Uh, then you're not doing an MRI no, here because we don't, yeah. have, <laughs> we don't have the system to accommodate it. Unless you have it, the one that I said they it get wrong. an MRI and it delivers the entire Everything. drug. Right. <laughs> no. Then, then we have to do a LP <laughs> try, I guess. <laughs> just don't. Or just wait, wait them out, I guess, and intubate well, my, them if they need it. Myelograms. Other, there's other imaging that I hadn't possibly. considered the lumbar puncture issue. So in a patient with a, you know, I'm thinking about a patient, an older adult who might come in with concern for CNS infection. This is really going to be something where I do a, a pretty hard stop on doing a, a blind LP as I would in, in the vast majority of people. And it's a safe procedure, but this might be a, a patient that I consider something like an IR guided procedure, how would you approach that bank? My heart says I should look on ultrasound to see if I can see mm. the tubing okay, and at least know the level. And if I can mark it, I might be able to go below it. Mm-hmm. I've not tried it though. So the tubing, to understand the anatomy, the tubing is coming around posteriorly and, and entering where I would put my needle. Is that kind of yeah. interesting? Okay. Yep. I'm sure that people around the clinic, they tell you about unique occurrences that happen with backlifting pumps all the time because you're the, you're the go-to person for this. Tell me, like, if you had to list all the variety of problems that you've seen with these devices, what comes to mind? First of all, the, the intrathecal backlifin don't always make it, a, well, it's not always make it a bad thing. Oh, it's definitely not. It's a fantastic delivery system for patients. Um, those that have them, and, and even if they've had problems with catheters whatnot they're like we have to fix it this is the only way to manage my asbestosity um so so i think the ones that are right now clear in my brain are the older catheters that have had problems i've had patients that in the last couple of years had their pumps uh re-implanted because of the battery but the old catheters and you know a few months to, or within a month or so we've had to go back and re-implant the catheter because there's issues with the old catheters um recently uh we had a gentleman came through our ed as well um he's had his pump for probably a year and was down in florida and somehow infected he had a rash on his axilla and then over his pump and um his pumps like got infected so then we had to emergently remove his pump and start him back on oral um Baclofen and try to you know get them over the hump of withdrawal, and then manage his spasticity. So right now we're managing his spasticity with oral baclofen, Botox injections, and then I know his home care um, provider is working with um, mar- medical marijuana to help his spasticity. If I'm worried that the device or the pocket that's in is infected, that is going to be a challenging thing to prove. How do I prove that so I can get a surgeon to take out the device? That is a tricky one. Um, you know, because we just don't want the person to develop meningitis or something terrible because of their hardware is infected. Um, so we do have to do some careful um, checking of any seroma around the, the catheter, any drainage. Um, certainly if there's an open access, I've, I've unfortunately I have had uh, persons with pumps erode their skin. Mm-hmm. So their pump was eroded through their skin and 
visible. I mean, those ones are quick and easy. You know you have to take those ones out. Okay. Um, infected, if someone has some kind of infection, we do have to be diligent in making sure we're not quickly to take out a pump, um, but trying to figure out what's the best for the patient and really working with our friends from ID because we don't want to take out a pump if we don't have to. Do you ever see spontaneous hematoma around an intrathecal baclofen pump? I have not. Okay. I have not. In the case of a patient who has an intrathecal baclofen pump and has a fever but is otherwise looking pretty good and we've excluded a lot of common sources of infection, is that something where we might arrange follow-up with your team uh, to make sure that the device is okay or would there be some other testing we would do in the emergency department in a patient who's otherwise stable to go home? Um, If we're thinking it's a fever related to the pump itself, um, I think also getting infectious disease involved. Okay, so that I mean, would be, um, if there were any suspicion, yeah. we admit them to the hospital and would get specialty consultation. Right, and then you know we'll monitor them regarding their spasticity management. If there's other things going on, if they're you know terribly infected, their spasticity is going to go up as well. That's a good point. I was just about to ask, in a situation where our hospital is full so often, do they all have to be admitted? But I can see how most of those patients are going to be quite symptomatic from whatever infection they have. And so they probably won't be comfortable and safe going home anyway. Correct. Correct. Although, you know, I've actually come to the ED um, with one of our patients who was more spastic and just wasn't feeling himself and not feeling well. Well, come to find out, the man had been con- severely constipated, and that increased his spasticity. And so once he was able to have a bowel movement and get his bowels back to regimen, he was back on board. So again, it's trying to figure out what's going on. Um, what are the other diagnoses going on that's causing the spasticity? Should we look at a causative list very similar to autonomic dysreflexia and the wide breadth of things that can trigger that in these patients? Is it similar? You know, in spinal cord injury, there's there's a, certainly a lot of triggers that, so many triggers that could cause spasticity, dysreflexia, ingrown toenails, a fracture. It, it's, it's hard to search and find. Um, we do have a really good um, algorithm on SMAO Expert. Okay. I don't know if you've had a chance to peek at that, but it's, it's well written and well put together with signs and symptoms and medication management for both overdose and underdose. Did you have a hand in that? I had a lot of hand in that, I but bet. also Jason Doffenbach in Mankato gets the biggest kudos when he was a senior with us. Wonderful. Teamwork, <laughs> it's always how this works. Mm-hmm. What, uh, speaking of that, what other specialties are, are potentially involved in the management of these types, these types of ITB pumps? Oh yeah, throughout our system and, and what I've you know gathered um, nationally, um, there's neurology that manages manages intrathecal pumps, um, neurosurgery, pain, and then physical medicine. Thank you so much. We've learned so much. What final thoughts do you have that you might want to share with our audience about this topic? You know, again, it's a great way to manage severe spasticity. And and again, we do our due diligence prior to putting these pumps in, okay? We, We make sure we've maximized oral medications as best as we can to the patient's tolerance. If that doesn't happen, we actually do a test dose before 
baclofen pumps are implanted. So it's a 50 microgram um, intrathecal test dose. Um, they'll come to our interventional radiology for the test dose, and then they'll come up to our PMR department for till about three and three o'clock in the afternoon. And we are evaluating the efficacy of that test dose to see how the patient responded. It gives us and the patient objective information of how they would feel if a pump was implanted. So we're pretty diligent about who gets implanted as well. So let's take a moment and summarize what we've talked about today. Intrathecal baclofen pumps are incredibly useful for improving the quality of life for persons with spinal cord injury who suffer from spasticity. With that said, these patients can present to your emergency department with complications that we need to prepare for. Spasticity is a hypertonicity that affects flexors of the upper limbs and extensors of the lower limbs. It's associated with hyperreflexia and clonus. This increased tone is more noticeable at the beginning of a movement and also increased with higher velocity movements. These situations usually are the result of lesions from affecting the corticospinal tracts. Baclofen withdrawal is one syndrome that can occur, usually related to mechanical failure, running out of medication, human error in entering the medication or programming the device. This can cause the patient to have increased spasticity, which can cause rhabdomyolysis or multi-system organ failure. This can even progress to be fatal. We need to consider this diagnosis, activate our specialists, such as physical medicine rehabilitation, neurology, pain management, or whoever manages these devices in your area. We need to relieve the spasticity with benzodiazepines, oral or IV baclofen, and watch for signs for rhabdo. Also, although unlikely, baclofen overdose can occur where too much medication is administered. Usually this is related to human error in filling the device or programming the device rather than a mechanical issue. These syndromes are characterized by sedation or coma, hypotension, bradypnea, bradycardia, hypothermia, sometimes nausea or vomiting, and in severe cases can even look akin to brain death. Thankfully, with early recognition, supportive care, most of these persons will do fine. In addition, we need to be vigilant to consider other diagnoses that mimic these syndromes, such as autonomic dysreflexia, serotonin syndrome, infections, and the like. We need to do careful history and physical examination to have an adequate differential diagnosis and to potentially recognize that a patient has a pump in the first place if they cannot tell us. In addition, even if your patient's presentation is unrelated to their pump or the medication, remember to consider the effects of MRI on your patient's pump and mobilize the proper resources to reset the pump after MRI or watch for the medication dump that the magnet might influence upon the pump. We hope that you'll feel more prepared the next time you encounter a person in your emergency department with baclofen complications or who has an intrathecal baclofen pump. Don't forget to come back mid-month for another episode and also take a minute right now if you could to like, follow, or comment on our show on whatever platform you're using. This summer, as you travel or have parties and get-togethers, we would love it if you would tell a friend about our show. It would help us to connect with an even broader audience. Thank you for tuning in every time. We really appreciate it. We hope you have a glorious, glorious summer or July. Thank you.
The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Valamakanda.